Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's show. So one of the things about Scale Up Your Business that I've personally enjoyed over the last couple of years, and for those of you who have been with me for those two years, you'll know that it's about business, but it's not about business, right? You know, we talk about purpose, we talk about mindset, we talk about the, the stuff that a business can create for you in your life, you know, be that freedom, be that wealth, be that impact, right? We talk about those things. And that to me has been probably the biggest privilege that I've had to be able to have this medium, have this platform to be able to, to help and to be able to communicate from. So today I'm bringing someone on who, you know what, this, this is not about business. This is about grit, resilience, mindset, values, uh, overcoming challenges, uh, as I said, resilience, re- really, really full-on resilience. Because this guy, he is a two-time terminal cancer survivor. Yep. And he is the first cancer survivor to summit Mount Everest. Yep, you heard that right, Mount Everest. Since then, he has climbed all seven summits. He has skied to both the North and the South Poles, making him the first cancer survivor to complete what is called the Explorer's Grand Slam. And it doesn't stop there. He's also completed the Hawaii Ironman while having one functioning lung. And literally, since doing all these different things, these adventures, these passions, he's captured the attentions, attention of millions and you know, has, has literally inspired so many people of what can be done what is possible, even though you've gone through so many different challenges. So he's done all that. He's also a philanthropist, author, international keynote speaker. And as I said, you know, just an adventurer doing some crazy, amazing things. So it is my absolute pleasure, and you're going to love this one. <laughs> you really love this one, to have on Scale Up Your Business today, Mr. Sean Swanner. Hi, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business for this week. Now, I've had some pretty amazing people come on the show over the last couple of years, and I always get excited for fun, interesting conversations for a number of reasons, but ultimately so I can help you, but also because I get a lot from them as well. And today, I've been excited for this conversation for literally weeks since we got connected. So I'm delighted to introduce to everybody here on Scale Up Your Business, Mr. Sean Swana, how are you? Um, I'm doing great, Nick. How's it going across the pond? It's great. Did I get the last name right? Is it Schwana or is it Schwana? Swarner, just like just like the Warner Brothers, but slap an S on the front. Go with it, quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm renowned for screwing people's names up, and there's a long history right. of it. So, partly because I'm Australian, right, and we don't have much culture there, and I now live in the UK. I've lived in the US, and my accents all over the place. But j- just to kick off, I'm just going to read a little bit of your bio. So people will understand why I'm you know, really excited for this. And then we'll kind of get into kind of a little bit more of the detail behind it. So with only one functioning lung, a prognosis of 14 days to live and being in a medically induced coma for 
a year. Sean Swammer is the first cancer survivor to stand on the top of the world, Mount Everest, um, and has broken through to find human limitation in order to redefine the way the world views success. Holy shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> I could keep going on, right? I could keep going on and we'll get into this, but man, I mean, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, how do you see the world? Because to go through that level of adversity and everything, what's your, what's your kind of paradigm like? You know, every, every morning I wake up and bef before I even get out of bed, the first thought I have, the instant I open my eyes is an affirmation I've told myself for years. And it's the past is gone. There's nothing I can do about it. Tomorrow may never come. No matter what happens today, today is the best day ever. So I do my, my best every morning to wake up on the right side of the bed and turn that day, because it's my choice, to into a wonderful day. And I'm going to make, make the best use out of the 24 hours that I'm given. Because there were nights I went to bed terrified to close my eyes because I didn't know if they were going to open the next morning or not. So every morning my eyes open, I'm grateful. Man, I've got goosebumps already. And we were like <laughs> one minute in. Um, okay. So, so let's just, let's just play with this a second. So when you had that prognosis of 14 days to live, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that. Right. I cannot, I, I, I can have empathy for it, but I can't really imagine it. What actually happened? So how, how did you, I mean, as it says here, stun the medical world, really? I mean, what actually happened? Was it something that you actively did? Did you start to manifest something different or is it a miracle? How do you describe it? You know, I, honestly, I think it started even before that. So with, with the first cancer, I was 13 and they gave me three months to live. And I, I, I very vividly remember waking up one morning, three months into the treatment, and I was sitting on the edge of my bed. And I looked to my left <clears throat> and my, my pillow was, was absolutely covered in hair. And I, I didn't realize this until later, but every time I was in the shower, my mom would actually sneak in there and replace the pillow cover. So I wouldn't notice it. But for this, th this time, I remember sitting there looking at the pillow and it's just, just covered. <clears throat> you know, it looked like a, a shaggy dog slept on the pillow. <laughs> so I, I, I knew I was going to be losing my hair because of the chemo, because of the treatments. And I ran into the bathroom, looked at myself in the mirror, and a couple things happened. First, I, I didn't even recognize in, in my mind the hideous monster looking back at me. You know, I, I, I was 60, 70 pounds overweight. I had chunks of hair that had been, been falling out of my head. And I, I knew it was inevitable. So I went into the shower and, and I turned it on. And I remember that it, it, it felt odd this time. It, it wasn't hitting my hair and then kind of seeping to my scalp. It was just hitting my scalp directly, just my skin. And I, I collapsed to the, sh the shower floor. I, I was on my hands and knees. And I remember just absolutely weeping you know, in utter, utter hopelessness, pulling chunks of hair out of, the out of the drain so the water could go down. But it was also <clears throat> in that moment when I decided that I had two choices. I could either fight for my life or give up and die. Literally just give up. And, and that wasn't an option. So I started thinking about it a little bit more. And what came to me was... I didn't want to focus on not dying. I wanted to focus on living. 
So if I kept focusing on and telling myself and the attention, and you, you probably understand this with running, you know, you, you probably don't tell yourself, don't quit, don't stop. You know, you, you make these little milestones. You want to go a little bit further, a little bit further because your brain is focused on and you're going to be uh, attracted to where your attention is. Yeah. So I, I constantly told myself that I wasn't, I didn't want to focus on not dying. I wanted to focus on living. Imagine how it would have turned out. I wouldn't be here right now. If I kept telling myself over and over again, don't die, don't die. I wanted to focus on living. You know, I, I wanted to go after what I wanted, not the avoidance of what I didn't want. So with the second cancer, when they gave me 14 days to live, <clears throat> well, for, first of all, they, they didn't tell me immediately. They told my parents. So I don't know if you have children, but can you imagine having a 16-year-old son, your firstborn son, uh, going through cancer the first time at 13, the second time at 16? You know, you, you, your, your parents, my parents, <clears throat> probably thinking to themselves, oh, crap, here we go again. You know, and I knew from my perspective, my life was on pause. I was going to lose pretty much everything, but I can't even imagine what my parents went through knowing that my life was, was, was pretty much over again. So they, the doctors told my parents the prognosis that my parents didn't tell me until later. How, how so, much later? Um, Cause I mean, was this the 14 day thing? So, so you, right. you, you didn't know about that. So they told, so, so that was wrong, obviously. I mean, and I know it's hard for doctors to get this right. Exactly. Right. But, but we're talking massively wrong because, you know, I don't know how old you are now, Sean, but <laughs> it's definitely not yeah, 14 no. days back. Uh, yeah. I'm not 16 years old in 14 days. So no, we're, we're no, good. precisely. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, I've, I didn't want to offend you, but, but that's so, so they knew you didn't know. Did you know the gap when they told you? I think it was about a month later because okay. it, it gets really hazy because every time I was in for a treatment, you know, earlier you mentioned I was at medically induced coma for a year. It was on and off. So my, my treatment cycle, um, I'd be inpatient Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Then I'd be released to have my body recover because you, you can't handle another uh, dose of the chemical cocktail until your body has more red blood cells and hemoglobin. Uh, because the, the chemotherapy doesn't necessarily target the cancer cells. It targets rapidly dividing cells, which is why you lose your hair, as well as red blood cells, hemoglobin, stuff like that. And you need those in white blood cells to survive. <clears throat> so I would go in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, be released. And then I go back in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. That would be one cycle. And every time I was in the hospital, that's when the doctors gave me something to not remember the treatments because they were so harsh. I went through three months of intense chemo, that, what I just mentioned, one month of radiation therapy, and then 10 more months of chemotherapy. So that three month and 10 month section of my life of being 16 years old, no clue, no, no idea what happened. Um, but that one month of radiation, I was lucid. I was, I was very, very awake because it was just the radiation. It was a bombardment to my right lung, which is why I only have one functioning lung. There's so much scar tissue, there's no oxygen transfer. <laughs> Right. Okay. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to kind of just go a little bit deeper into, because, because these sort of things just still astound me, right? My father passed away from cancer, lung cancer complication, let's call it about four or five years ago. Oh, uh, no, no, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, I just find the stuff, I, I, the thing I'm, I'm, I find fascinating is when people overcome something like this and thrive from it, like you clearly have, versus the people who don't. And, and what is the difference? And I don't want to, I don't really want to play luck into this <laughs> unless you come back and say, you know what, Nick, it's, it's, there's a lot of luck here, right? 
because I, you know, I'm, I'm not from a frame of reference to really make that, that judgment, but, but what did you do? I mean, is there a, is there a really strong mindset thing here, a belief system change, uh, as you said, a focus on what you could change and those things, however they work, however they connect made a fundamental difference to you being here now. I, I don't think it was, and, and a lot of people ask me the same question, you know, what was it? Was it, was it modern medicine? Was it prayer? Was it, uh, you know, the, the inner belief system that I have? I think it was the combination of everything all together at once at the right time. So it was modern medicine, family support, prayer, an inner will to get up, a sense of humor, <clears throat> excuse me, a sense of humor, um, the, the proper attitude, visualization. I think there were so many things that went into it. When, when I was going through the first treatment, I actually visualized myself inside my body, destroying the cancer cells. At, at 13 years old, I, I maybe I was bored. I don't know. Maybe. Did, did someone teach you this? Did you, did you read a book? No. Or the, wow. No, no, I, I, I'd I had used it before just the, the visualization because I was a, a competitive swimmer for years. And I thought, well, if it works for swimming, why couldn't it work for this? So maybe it was a, a, a child's imagination that helped as well. So I actually visualized myself in a microscopic spaceship coming through the IV drip. And I remember going through that clear tube and looking around the hospital room where I could see my bed laying onto my, off to my left side. I could see the television over here, the door out to the hallway to my left, my mom or my dad sitting on a, a, a reclining, recliner chair, um, the window to the outside to my right. And then all of a sudden I was, I was thrust to my body where everything got dark and then the spaceship lit up on the inside. And then there were millions of little spaceships that collected in, in the heart. And I, and I wasn't just looking at it from the, the third person perspective. It was, I was inside my body, first person perspective. And I remember seeing the valves of my, my heart beating. And when it opened and it was my turn, I remember I got shot through my body into my blood vessels and I was darting around my, my body following a blip on my, my dashboard directing me to where I was supposed to go. And I would sneak up on the cancer cells and unload rockets and missiles and lasers and everything that were laden with radiation and chemotherapy. So in my mind, I was in my body, inside my body, destroying the cancer cells while I was also having the treatments. See, there's so much, there's so much in that, right? Like, you know, I, I don't even want to sort of belittle it by trying to unpack it all, but like, you know, the whole, the whole visualization piece, Right, you know, uh, yeah, however you did it, it's just incredible, isn't it? You know, because I, 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 I'm fascinated by this concept of, you know, when you hear like how much, how much of our brain do we really use? You know, mm. I don't know what the latest stat is, right? But like there's, and there are people who, um, you know, are on the spectrum of autism and they open up other parts of their brain, which are just incredible. Right. So, you know, there is so much that I think you can heal yourself to some extent, can't you, by, by kind of what you described. I mean, you, you did, but... Some people have an ability to do that or a way of unlocking that in themselves. I, I think so. And I, I think that because I've also utilized it with Everest and the Seven Summits and the Hawaii Ironman and other things and, and marathons, and I'm sure you've done it too. When, when you get down, when you're tired, when the, the proverbial piano falls from the sky and hits your back and you want to quit, you know, or the, or the brick wall that you, you swear you have to run through and if somebody just placed it right in front of you that you have to either smash through, go around, go over, whatever. It's visualizing and picturing yourself at the end, the end result. But it's not just that. And, and that's where most people stop. The, the key connection here that most people don't make 
is how do you feel when you actually accomplish that? It's that emotional attachment of how it, how it hits you on a personal level. It's not just, oh, hey, seeing myself across the finish line or seeing myself on top of, of the mountain. It's how does that make me feel? Because once you tap into those emotions, then it becomes real to your body and your brain. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I, I believe that. And again, from my, from my running, there's a couple of things you said, which is absolutely true. One is focus on the outcome, right? The result, but then break it down into the things that I can absolutely take action on. So I'm not thinking about, there's a hundred miles at the beginning, you know, that's the goal or the result I want to achieve it. I'm thinking about the next checkpoint, you know, 10 miles, 10 miles, whatever, whatever that is. And by breaking it down into those incremental things that I can control, eventually you kind of chip away at the big thing. Absolutely. It's, it's like that old adage, that old saying, and I have no idea where it came from, but how do you eat an elephant? You know, one, one bite at a time. Yeah, it's a disgusting analogy, but it makes it sense, is, isn't it? But a lot of people don't do it, right? And again, they get overwhelmed, they get stressed, they get burnt out because they they see something that's just so massive, yeah. as opposed to as opposed to that. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you've achieved since this, because um, there's a heap of stuff here. You mentioned Everest, which I want to get into. Um, obviously, you know, was it the Hawaii Man you did or Hawaiian Ironman? Correct. Wow. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So, so Everest, how many times? Once is enough. Once is enough. Okay. And you've done the seven summits. Let's talk about Everest. I'm sure people ask you this all the time. This is personally, everyone listening, this has got nothing to do with you listeners. This is just me. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, what is that like, man? I mean, first first and foremost, how, how and why did you set that goal? Uh, and then I'd like to learn from your perspective, the experience, particularly with one functioning lung, let alone just the enormity of that whole goal in its own right. I appreciate it. The whole, the whole concept actually came up um, after you call it university in these states, we call it college after college. Um, I, I went to grad school and I wanted to be a psychologist for cancer patients. I figured I had a lot to offer. Uh, not only the fam, not only the person who's going through the treatments, but also the family because cancer, as you know, is not an individual disease. Everyone goes through it together. Yeah. So I wanted to provide some insight, some psychological counseling, whatever I might be able to do to help the families and the, and the patient. But I didn't realize that I hadn't dealt with my own issues. I wasn't ready to, to, to work with other people who who've been touched by the disease yet. But I, I kept doing the research and I thought, okay, I have this tremendous mind-body connection because a year after I was placed in remission, I was in a track meet. From, it was actually my league's track meet, uh, the championship. And I ran the 800-meter run and won. I ran a 156 with one lung. So that, that wasn't too shabby <laughs> as an 18-year-old. It's amazing. Thought, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that, I don't think. I'm just trying, I'm not even close to it. Anyway. <laughs> so I, I figured I, <clears throat> I had something here with, with the body. And I wanted to give hope back to people touched by cancer. And I kept searching for higher and higher platforms. And that's when I just kept going higher and higher and higher. Just, I the, the, essentially came up with the largest platform in the world to scream hope, to give something back to people. And I came up with that idea when I was in Jacksonville, Florida, and the highest point down there is the top of the Four Seasons Hotel. So we had to, <laughs> I moved to Colorado where I live now and started training. Um, eventually when we, when we made it over there, and I say we, because my brother went with me, he was my, my eyes and ears at base camp. Um, it, it was it was a life-changing experience and it was back in 2002 so it's, it wasn't the circus that it, that it is now 
I, I didn't have to wait, you know, four hours in line before getting to the summit. I was actually the third person to summit that whole season. And we spent 30, maybe 40 minutes on the top. And it was just a slight breeze. So it was a beautiful day. It was almost like the heavens open up and, ah, you know, they're welcome. This, this day is for you. But what made it more meaningful than anything else was the entire time I was climbing, I had a flag that was about you know, a foot, two feet by a foot. And it had names of, of people touched by cancer, people who had passed away, people who were in remission or people who were going through treatment. And that was always folded up in my chest pocket close to my heart as a constant reminder of why I was on the mountain. So it wasn't about me. It was about giving back and giving hope to other people touched by cancer. And when I got to the summit, I unfurled that flag and wrapped it around the top of the world. So I, I collapsed. To my, I'll be honest with you. I collapsed to my knees, my hand in my, 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 hand in my face, and I, I wept. It was so emotional. I can, I can, well, I can feel it now. I just, <laughs> just saying it. And what about your perception of surviving? And there's, there's, you know, you've, you've gone through you know, as I said, two, two different bouts of cancer and you survived and then you're putting your body through something which a lot of people don't survive. You know, I don't, I don't know what the stats are, but I've, I've seen some of it. What was your thinking behind that? Not that you feel invincible. I, I get you probably don't, probably more vulnerable than ever, but, you know, you, you, there's a risk here. I'm just curious about how you think about that. You, I, and, and no offense, but I hear my dad's voice echoing in my head. Because when we left, he, he was in South Carolina. And I remember him very vividly looking at me and saying, we didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice. <laughs> yeah, I, I was being polite. I was, that's what I was thinking. But no, but I, 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 I can get why he would say that. Having Absolutely. two young daughters, I'd, you know, I'd be saying that too. But yeah, I mean, but I, I, I suppose it comes back to what you said at the very beginning of our conversation, Sean, which is, you know, you want to live every day. I, honestly, I, th I think looking back at it, and, and even now, I think I'm more afraid of not living than I am of dying. Okay. And I, I, I don't think I want to, or anyone for that matter, should live to be 100 years old and, and be safe inside their house without taking any chances. Because right across that line of fear, right across that line of, of, of comfort is where life begins. And so many people play it safe. I don't want to sit there on, on my deathbed and look back at my, my life and have any, any what if questions. What if I would have tried harder? What if I would have done this? What if I would have gone there? What if I would have attempted this? How am I supposed to know if I don't do it? Yeah. And does anything, I mean, what scares you now? Maybe that long silence there is. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask because I, I don't mind what the answer, you know, the answer is the answer, right? I, 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 I don't think it's probably nothing, but fear is an interesting thing in its own right. We could have a whole conversation about fear. So I'm, I'm also a, a certified professional coach. I have a, a nifty little certificate and everything. Um, Congratulations. There, in, in, in my studies and, and with my professional coaching, there are four things that usually hold people back, and they're called the gales, the gremlins, the, the assumptions, the interpretations, and limiting beliefs. And the gremlin is that little voice on the side of your shoulder telling you, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have enough money. You, you, you're, not, you're, not, you're too young. You're too old, whatever it might be. And I think I have my gremlins, he's named Cooper. So the, the, the Cooper reminds me 
not the fact that I'm, I'm not good enough or that I haven't accomplished enough. It's that I won't ever accomplish enough. So when I do, when I do something, it's, I, I, I have to do something else. You know, that wasn't enough. You have to push a little bit further, do, do a little bit more. So I think going back to your question of what I'm afraid of, it's not doing enough. And I think it might also go back to just proving to myself that I'm still alive, proving to myself that I, I, I still am able to do these things because I want to never have any regrets. So my gremlin is always constantly pushing me and my fear is that I won't accomplish enough, which I know I already have, but is I there still also, want to myself. Is there also an appreciation of the ability to now do these things. And, and I'll ask this as well, you know, and then this is not supposed to be some psychoanalyst. I'm just curious, <laughs> a, a degree of guilt that you then have to do these things because others can't, because you've now been given that additional chance to do it. People often talk about something called survivor's guilt. Okay. And I, I haven't heard of that, by the way, I just, it was just a, as I'm listening to you, it just came to me. Uh, well, great insight because it, there is something called survivor's guilt. Um, and it happens often when every, everywhere I go, I, I do my best to visit local patients, you know, local hospitals. And I, I talk to the, the people who are fighting for their lives. And it's, it's incredibly emotional for both of us. Um, so the person who's, who's laying in the hospital bed, they're looking at someone who's been in their situation, who's now accomplished some some crazy feats around the world. And what's amazing too, is when I'm in the hospital system and when I'm, when I'm touring the hospital, I'll smell something that'll trigger a memory from when I was in my, um, uh, my medically induced coma. Because the sense of smell is closest linked to memory. So they say, you know, that's above my mm -hmm. pay. So I will smell something, it'll trigger a memory and it'll, it'll hit me on an emotional level in a gigantic way. And then all of a sudden I'm, I say, okay, well, I, I have to go back to the hotel room. And that's when I'll go back to the hotel room, bury my face in the pillow and I'll, I'll lose it. I'll start thinking about why that person may not survive. Why did I survive? And I've, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've been in touch with people via email. Um, there was a young man from Australia, from Sydney. I went to visit the children's hospital there. And he and I were going back and forth two or three times a week um, via email, just, just staying in touch. And then all of a sudden just, it was silent. Maybe two, three, exactly. Two, three weeks went by and his mother sent me a message saying that he passed away. And that's, that's difficult. When you, when you get to, in, as, as you know, with your father, it's difficult getting to know that person and have that person pass away. And his mother sent me an email saying to not to be sad, but be happy because every day he woke up, he said that he wanted to be like Sean. Wow. I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've had anyone on the show who's had such a strong mission behind what they do. I can't think of anything like in, you know, 200 odd episodes or thereabouts. It's incredible. So I want to kind of just talk about a couple of things we touched on um, before we press record, actually. And one of the things we started to play around with was values. And, and I'd love to get your understanding or your definition of values. And I suppose the second part of that question is how have values shaped your life? It's, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, when I was talking about the, the young man from Sydney, 
I was thinking about values. Like, why, why am I, why am I still doing this? It hurts so much you know, at an emotional level. <clears throat> I almost teared up talking about it, but it's, it, it really is part of my, uh, my values. And, and I actually have a journal I put together myself and I don't know if you're going to see it with the, uh, Oh yeah, I can see it. <laughs> the summit, the summit challenge. I can see. On the yeah, cool. And I, if people, people don't understand that from, from, from the instant you're born, everything you see, hear, smell, read, whatever it, it's recorded inside your brain. And if, if you're not careful, what you consume will program your brain as opposed to you programming it yourself. And just, I, I think so many people in the world are on autopilot. They don't even understand and they don't even realize that their brain is being programmed by the media, social media, te television, whatever it might be. And to help with that, if you understand what your personal core values are, you know, here, here are mine. <clears throat> I wrote down things like adventure, compassion, family, fun, growth, happiness, health, obviously health. Um, honestly, <laughs> and then one here, one a big one is meaningful work. So I, I take it a, a step further. So after I have my list of values, of a list of my personal core values, I actually rate each one of those on a scale of one to ten. How I'm actually living that value. How so often do you how often do you do that? Do you do that like every, weekly? Daily? Every three weeks. Every three weeks. Okay. Every three weeks, because. Every morning I write down, today my value affirmation is blank. And then I will try to blank. I will learn to blank, three things there. That's a morning bookend. And then I do an evening bookend where I write down, I am grateful for blank that happened today, five things there. And then from the above, I am most grateful for one of the above because of something. And it helps me tap into my personal core values. But the biggest component here is, let's say I value, I wrote down family. I must, I, I must really, really have value family. It must mean something to me tremendously. But I wrote down that I'm actually living that value at a five for family. Now I can see exactly where every morning I wake up, I need to start putting and devoting more energy and attention because I, ha I can see where I'm lacking. So it's not just waking up in the morning and thinking, oh, maybe I'll, I'll focus on this. Maybe I'll focus on that. But when you do this, and if anyone's interested, shoot me an email. I'll send you the, 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 the core values assessment. Uh, personal growth. I, I wrote that as a, per, uh, as a core value. I am living that at a four. You know, that might be Cooper on my shoulder talking to me. But I wake up every morning and I want to engage in activities that help develop my personal growth. I want to focus more on giving attention and time to my family. So I know exactly what I need to do to become more whole and happy. Yeah. Okay. This is cool. And this is, this is an important thing for people listening into this. There's a lot of different takeaways. I'm going to try and summarize at some point and totally muck it up. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you what I, I believe, because I think there's, there's an interesting sort of Venn diagram sitting here. And, and I look at values as, things that align with where you get energy from and actually your highest purpose or highest mission. So, so my highest value, if you want to call it that is, is teaching, you know, mm -hmm. teaching, teaching people. And I've been, if, it's funny, if I connect all the way back to when I was a teenager, I was always teaching people. I was coaching. I was a personal trainer for a long time, even in the world of corporate. But I, sometimes when you lose touch with your highest value, that's when you have conflict. But my highest value is teaching. My second highest value is my health. 
you know, my fitness and I, and I exercise all the running, all that sort of stuff. Some, to some extent extreme, but it's about an identity thing. Then it's personal development and growth. You know, what can I learn? How can I grow? How can I challenge myself and push further? Then it's wealth building. Then it's family, interestingly, right? Um, and then it's travel and experiences. Hmm. But those values, I look at them, I look at them in terms of that's how I spend my time. So the family one for a while was a bit of conflict because why isn't it my highest value, right? And you can't fight that sometimes. You may think that your highest value should be something it's not, but it's how you spend your time, where you get your energy, where, you know, if you get up every day, it doesn't feel like it's work because you love it. You see what I mean? So I think there's a nice lap with what you've just said there, but the importance of values, I think, just to define happiness or contentment or whatever you want to call it, or just feeling like you're making a difference are just so critical. Absolutely. And, and I, I encourage everyone to figure out what your values are without knowing those you you don't know your purpose in life and i think floundering around in 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 the world without having a sense of purpose it's meaningless and lots of people do it though sean i mean like you know it's 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 an overused analogy of the matrix with the red and the blue pill but it kind of feels a bit like that you know i remember when i was floundering around for quite some time i just felt like i was in a machine literally like you know i would get up i'd jump on a tube I, you know everyone else looks like they just want to you know kill themselves basically because it's just so uh, and then all of a sudden you realize there's something else but a lot of people never ever take that leap or put themselves in that position unless something's happened. So for you, it was extreme stuff, right? For me, it was extreme in my world, but different. But it was only after I, I saw that, that I realized that I had to do something different. But why do you think it is? Why do you think people don't? Why do you think they wait till they're 60 or 70 and then they really look back or whatever and they go, oh my God, you know? I, I was, was going to ask you the same question. <laughs> <laughs> and you would, would have fun. Are you, I, do you want to go for you? You're the guest, so you've got to answer first, and then I can, and then I can sound intelligent afterwards I, because <laughs> you, you can spend some time thinking about it while I'm talking. That's right, exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's it's, I think regret, and I, I could be wrong, but I, I think regret is, is a powerful motivator. And when people get to like say 60, 70 years old, that's when they start regretting things. And I, I think. One way to, to, I was looking for a piece of paper, one way to get over that is grab a sheet of paper and draw a horizontal line and two vertical lines connecting the two. Write down on, on the left side, I guess, is that the left side for you? The left side. Yes. That, okay, <laughs> the left side, a, a four-digit number that corresponds to the year you were born. Add about 80 years or the number 80 to that other one on the other side you now have a visual representation of your life. And it's incredibly eye-opening when you figure out where you are on that line. Mm, wow. I've never done that, but I can, I've seen sort of on computers, you, you have this kind of how many days you've got left sort of stuff. It's the same principle, but you're right. Like I'm 47. So I, I can see, I can see where I am. <laughs> Exactly. And my dad died. My dad was 67 when he passed away, you know, so young in, in context. So now I get it, but it's, 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 it's that awakening and awareness, I suppose, is the first piece. Yeah. But what, what if, what if you remove the line where you are now and you eliminated the, the entire rest of that section where you added 80, because you never know. That's not a guarantee. Mm. 
I had cancer when I was 13. My lifeline should have been this big. You know, I'm, I'm say my lifeline now is this, this big, but I could be in a car accident tomorrow. I could fall down the steps of walking down the, downstairs. You never know. And so many people take it for granted. They're like, ah, you know, tomorrow's a new day. Bullshit. Pardon my friends, but you don't know that. There's no guarantee. Today and right now is the only time we have. Yeah. Wow. The, um, my, thought, my thought on that question is you know, similar to you. There's a piece where people kind of live in this, this bubble. And the way I understand it, and certainly has been true in my life, is either the, the, the extremes of pleasure or pain often force a change. And usually it's pain. You know, you have to break, you have to have something happen. Uh, and I wish it wasn't this way, but it seems to be quite common that then you, you have this kind of shift, a realization that makes you take a different action. Whereas if you sit in the middle of those two dimensions, it's kind of not that bad. It's not that great, but it's quite easy to live in that line of mediocrity. And I think a lot of people do that. I, I absolutely, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's just like any, any learning curve or, um, any, any grade school curve or any, any curve, any bell curve, period. You have the, the slackers down here. You have the folks in the middle who are the average, and then you have high, high achievers. It's, it's one of the two that are going to make the big changes. Yeah. So what's um, for someone who's achieved so many, um, as you said, feats, what's, what's next, you know, what's immediately next. <laughs> And because I know you're into vision and, and you've probably got a plan or at least an intention for a number of other things, just take us through that, that forward journey. Again, appreciative of the fact of what you said, that you don't know how many days you've got, but I'd just love to know how you think about, you know, what you want to, what you want to do next and, and what's on that plan. Well, I've, I, I, I recently got married. <clears throat> I, I heard that's a pretty tough adventure. Oh so. yeah. That, that's the Everest <laughs> is a piece of cake, dude. Like, honestly, you wait. <laughs> <laughs> my wife's somewhere around there, but she, well, she might come storming in. That has <laughs> no, I, I think um, mine, she actually just went downstairs. We're, we're going to be doing yoga. We do yoga every morning, but oh, lovely. Um, we, I, we got married January 9th, uh, two years ago. So we're, it's still kind of fresh. We've known each other for a long time, but as far as um, next in my life, it's actually escalating others and, and helping them. And I put something together called the big hill challenge. Yeah. If you just go to thebighillchallenge.com, all the information is there, but it's utilizing your personal core values through a series of personal challenges, helping you get more, more out of life. But also every year, as you can see behind me, that's Kilimanjaro. I, uh, I take a group up Kilimanjaro every year as a fundraiser for a cancer charity. And we actually pay for a survivor's trip every year, you know, all costs covered, but then it's the, re it's the responsibility of the survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor, kind of paying it forward. And the biggest fundraiser we do is we add names onto a flag of hope that we take to the top of Kilimanjaro, which is the highest mountain in Africa. And we still have a few, few spots open if anyone's, if you're interested. We, uh, we're leaving July 24th or 25th into uh, JRL, Kilimanjaro International Airport. And if anyone's concerned about safety regulations or success rates or anything like that, this will be my 21st summit of Kilimanjaro. 21st. And 21st. And the average success rate is roughly 48%, but my groups are at 98%. Wow. 
Yeah, I, this is um, the whole the whole idea of um, climbing summits fascinates me. I haven't done any of them, and it's not because I'm not. <laughs> it comes back to my values and focus. But I I, I, I don't know. This is this is how naive I am to it. I, I kind of thought that Kilimanjaro was not going to say easy, but but that's that's actually your statistics incredible. But the fact that only half make it in, in traditional um, statistics. Yeah, that that blew my mind too. Um, yeah. it's it. There's nothing. There's nothing technical about the route. It's it's the altitude, and it's the attitude that people have. So what I do every day is I I kind of inject <clears throat> certain things each day. Um, for example, the the first night I let people go, and I hope no one's listening to this who's actually going to go this year. But I, the first <laughs> night I let them go. <laughs> they get they get to camp at the uh, the dining tent and then they'll, they'll just each one of them it never it always happens never fails they'll start complaining oh my god my feet hurt oh my back's killing me oh it was so i can't believe i'm soaked to the bone well first of all you just went through a rain a tropical uh, african rainforest you're gonna get wet so that's, <laughs> that's gonna happen but I, I let them go and they get it out and then i stop after the little there's a little pause it always happens like, all right, now give me five things you're grateful for that happened today. Focus on things that you have control over. Don't try to control the things that you can't. It's as simple as that. That's the first day. Just understanding your, the, the perspective you have on whatever it is you're doing makes the, makes the trip enjoyable or miserable. It's, it's like having a good set of boots. If you don't break your boots in, they're going to be your worst enemy. But if you have a good pair of boots, they're, they're fantastic. They fit like a glove. And how, so how much of, sorry, how, how much of, of these challenges that you run are about the challenge versus putting yourself in an environment where it's really about yourself and what you learn? Well, the, the online program I just mentioned, the bighillchallenge.com, that's yeah. completely, you do that at home. That's, that's not a real challenge, a, a real physical challenge. That's a challenge you do at home. The Kilimanjaro trip, it, it, people don't realize how, and you probably understand this, people don't realize how mental being physical is. Mm, yeah, I totally get it, but I appreciate exactly what you just said. People don't understand the connection, Correct. the mind-body connection. Correct. So on the, tr- on the trip, you know, I, I give personalized attention to every single person. And what happens on summit night, and I think another reason why we're so, so successful is I send out a questionnaire before we leave and it basically helps people tap into and help me understand how they're motivated. So some people are motivated by, excuse me, by tough love. Uh, You'll never make it. You can't do it. You're not good enough. Some people are motivated by encouragement. You got this. You can do it. Continue forward one step at a time. Some people are motivated by um, more internal things like uh, remember why you're here. You know, think about your grandma, whatever it might be. So I remember what each person is motivated, how each person is motivated. And when I see them staggering like a walking zombie in the middle of the night going out for the summit, I'll go up behind them and just kind of whisper in their ear what exactly what they need to hear. Because everybody's uh, a, a unique individual. You know, and, and if, if you're trying to encourage them like uh, the army, you know, embarking orders, that might work for some people. Some people it won't which is the genius behind the big hill challenge because it taps into what motivates you on a personal core level. All right. I'm going to make sure that everyone has access to this. Um, so I've got your website, which is um, seanschwana.com. 
And then the Big Hill Challenge, I was just looking at as you were talking, <laughs> just checking it all out. So if people want to get in touch with you, that's where to go. Anywhere else? I mean, I, I encourage everyone to kind of just go and look at your story. There's a whole heap of different content here, and we've only touched the surface on some of it um, today. Um, but anywhere else that um, you know, people can reach out and, and get in touch with you directly, Sean? SeanSwater.com or my email, Sean, like Sean Connery the proper way. Um, oh, wow. At, okay, cool. You, you're inundated yeah. now. You'll need, <laughs> and I'm sure you're the sort of person who goes back on pretty much all of it too. I can get that. Sense. I did. One of the things I learned in high school is typing. So I respond to everybody who sends me an email. Um, oh, I love it. And pretty quickly, you know, zip it out. Um, but Sean at cancerclimber.org. Okay. Well, I'm going to do a very, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to do a quick summary of what I, well, there's so many different things, but there's one thing I kind of want to just sort of draw on. So, you know, a lot of people are listening to this who are business owners or entrepreneurs and they want to grow their business, scale their business. They want to do that because they want to create freedom, really. They want to create impact. They want to change their lives. If you're sitting there listening to this today and you're making excuses as to why you can't do what you want to do or you haven't got clarity or this is happening, the coffee fell over or your computer, whatever the thing is, just listen. <laughs> to what this guy has done. And if you're not inspired, whatever, you know, I'm not going to say motivated. If you're not inspired to kind of go after the stuff that really matters, then don't listen to this podcast again. <laughs> go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. Cause this isn't for you, right? This is not for you. Um, Sean, this has been amazing, mate. It's been a great conversation. Um, I'm grateful for you to come on the show and give up your time and I encourage everybody to, to look you up and, um, and follow your journey and your story. So thanks I very much. Definitely appreciate that, Nick. Thank you for everything. You know, you're, you're providing an outlet, not only for my stories, but for other people to listen and learn. So thank you. Very grateful for your time. Awesome. Thank you, man. And there you have it, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale-up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.